Well, and that's that's another funny angle to the thing, right? A lot of these banks don't want to be mean to the borrower. Right. <laughs> and, and credit unions especially, like I said earlier, have this thing where the credit unions are like, we can't foreclose on this guy, but maybe you can. And yeah. it's it's a weird dynamic because you're like, isn't this like a, a business thing? Like, like, didn't they fuck up? Like, don't they owe you money? But they're like, no, no, we don't want to. We don't want to hurt our deposit base. We don't want to. We don't want to be the bad guy. So yeah, there is a there's a there's an opportunity in the market for a bad guy. <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open ended discussion and journey covering real estate business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. At their core, Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate investment firm. But beyond that, they are committed to technology and a world-class culture, which leads to a very forward-thinking mentality. Do you want to stay in the know on all things Fort Capital? Be sure to follow Fort Capital on LinkedIn and sign up for the quarterly newsletter on www.fortcapitallp.com. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. All right, Kyle, this is something that the people deserve. We've been trying to make this happen for a few months. So thank you for uh, joining me today on the show. Yeah, Chris, thanks for having me. Super excited for this. Yeah, I think you're hilarious. I think this episode will be informative and funny, and that's, that's the goal. So we'll just kick it off with how did you go from one, how did you get to Wall Street? And then how did a career on the world's greatest street, push you in the direction of buying crack houses next? (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. That was the same thing my friends asked me when I I kind of soft pitched it. They were like, you're going to do what? Are you fucking crazy? (laughs) So I got to Wall Street. I went to a a state school and studied math and I got to Wall Street. Really, it was was a lot of like hustle and like pretty gritty, gritty like sourcing. So like a lot of the shit, a lot of the ways that I source shit today is kind of kind of harkens back to the good old days. So I would be on Bloomberg all day. We had Bloomberg at the school, which was dope, just downloading folks who worked at funds. And then I had a script that would blast out a resume and a trade idea to all those guys. I went to school, I went to College Park in Maryland. So I would like hop on the bus ditch class Thursday, Friday, and like get drinks with these guys and try to convince them they should they should hire me. That ended up panning out. I was at a, a hedge fund in Greenwich when I graduated in 2015 to um, 2018 or so. And alongside that, I had started compliance is really wild when you trade public markets. Like you, you can't really do shit without asking. And I'm not a fan of asking. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, one one weekend I was in the office and I was like, I wonder if there's anything I could do. And I was flipping through the compliance of like this big ass PDF and real estate. They're like, open season. We don't give a shit. And I was like, right, <laughs> I'll try it. Why not? So that was kind of the the impetus for the thing. And then, so the fund I was at is a it's a multi strat. So it's like shitload of leverage, bunch of desks, everybody doing their own thing. 
So the guys I sat across from traded bank stocks while I was trading, you know, corn and soybeans. And so it's a it's a it's a sick operation where you get enough deaths and you, and you can make it work. And and you know, Millennium has has made it work for a long time now. But one of the things about it is that they do can like twenty percent of the front office every year. So in twenty eighteen, my desk got ran, run over by some of the Trump tariff shit. And we, we didn't have an incredible you know year. And they said, hey, listen, you know, we've seen enough of this shit. You guys can go home. But I had like <laughs> three months of, of garden leave that I was sitting out. And during that time, I just did the real estate shit full time while I was interviewing with the other funds. And it became clear at a point that I really liked the freedom, probably more so than anything, just being able to do whatever the fuck I felt like doing. <laughs> And so that was, you know, the rest is kind of history. I had turned down the fund offers that I had at that point and said, fuck it, we're going to do this real estate shit. And it's been a lot. I mean, it's been a lot of fun. I think one of my favorite things about Twitter as a platform is I try to I try to give people some who are like in those institutional seats, right? Thinking about because I, I was there. I was there before my desk got the axe. I was like, this this is a fucking I don't, I don't know if I can do this forever. So but the crack houses, apparently I can do it forever. So I, crack is uh, it's addicting, right? It's addictive. You'll never. I (laughs) I will never. That smell. You don't forget that smell. The first time you're like, "What the fuck is that?" Somebody microwaved their fucking Tupperware too long, and you're like, "Oh, oh, that's what that is." All right, we're in the deep end. All right, we're. I'm going to ask a few questions on Wall Street. How do you come up with a trade idea? Like you, there's a bunch of y'all showing up every day, hopped up on coffee. And like, how does a trade idea surface? And like, what is the process you go to to go like, okay, this is a great idea that nobody else would know about? Or is it just known that like everybody knows about this? We're still going to do it. So that's a great, that's an awesome fucking question, right? And one of the, one of the things, one of the things that kind of convinced me to flip from sort of public markets to real estate was that you, I feel like you can iterate way quicker in real estate and 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 the causal link between shit you do and and good or bad shit that happens to you subsequently is way 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 tighter right so like i'll give you i'll i'll explain like how my desk would come with the trade idea right and for the most part we're a longer term structural very fundamental sort of operation right so we would put together basically using trade flows import export production consumption for mostly agricultural, but some energy to commodities, right? And we would say, hey, you know, over the next six months, 12 months, this quarter, that quarter, are there any big imbalances between supply and demand? And do we think that should do something for spreads or price of the futures, right? And so if you think about like trade flows, that's where most of it comes out, right? Folks who are like buying and selling commodities domestically, like, yeah, there's some hedging, but for the most part, like trade houses, which is what all of my, the guys who ran my desk kind of came from, right? Ultimately, if there's a trade imbalance somewhere, someone's going to need to come to market. China's going to come market and buy a lot more soybeans than, than, you know, than sort of people think today, right? Then there could be a trade there with respect to, okay, where is it? Do we think the market has anticipated this with respect to where futures are pricing, right? So, that's kind of, and I think a lot of discretionary desks, right? Whether it's equities, commodities, rates, it's 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 kind of a similar thing, which is you're out there kind of betting on some sort of mean reversion, betting on to, to some extent, right? That fundamentals are going to be the thing that drives price over a, a long term. And something that's tough about that, right, is you can see guys who have 20 years experience in discretionary space get their ass fucking kicked 
for months, <laughs> right? And with no with no real reason, right? And they'll say, oh, it's flows, oh, it's, it's those asshole, it's those other asshole hedge fund guys. They're fucking us. And yeah. you're just, and I'm kind of like, you know, I'm pretty new to the whole thing. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't know if I could be wrong for this long and <laughs> and without a reason. Like I'm wrong a lot. But I, I feel like usually there's a reason. Like I did something I was obviously dumb or there's some macro thing. Go, but, you know, I think one of the cool things about private markets relative to public is that causal link between what you do and what happens is a lot tighter broadly. Yeah. So you can in the public markets, you're just that's a you just say you can be wrong and for a while and have no clue why you're wrong because it is a lot more emotional and, well, and other it, factors it, it going could in. even be worse than that right it could be you're right from a fun the fundamentals are playing out like you expect but it's not showing up in in futures pricing and you're like ah fuck and so one of the one of the only things that and, and this was something that in retrospect i ended up thinking about a lot we couldn't trade physical because there's a lot of counterparty risk associated with that and we pitched a couple of times, you know, the risk folks on letting us do that because, you know, the physical does tend to line up with fundamentals. It's not a bunch of Wall Street hedge funds that are trading physical corn and bean. And, you know, they said no <laughs> because they couldn't, you know, if you if you do something like that and, and you know, say we fuck up and they have to unwind it, it's going to be a disaster. You know, when they fire people, they want to push a button and make your whole book you know, go away nice and smooth. <laughs> so, yeah. Are you coming up with an idea a week, an idea a month, an idea a day? Like how often do you need to have an idea? Yeah. So for the most part, it was, I mean, we would have, because we were a big sort of like structural fundamental desk, we would probably have somewhere in the neighborhood of five to six to seven to 10 on the super high end ideas in a calendar year. Right. So because you're playing for something, because you're sort of seeing something that's that you think the market has mispriced, right? It's going to take a while for that to play out. Now, there's a lot of ways of playing it, whether it's options or spreads or just outright flat price, right? There's a lot of of, of ways of expressing that and, and a lot of ways of, of putting that on, as they would say. But for the most part, on on big sort of thematic desks that do that bit structural sort of stuff like that, usually you have a couple of, you know, you don't have that many views over the course of a year where you're like, oh, this is important enough that we should get in and, and do this. Yeah. And were you just compensated? Is that how people are compensated? It's like, however well your idea does, you're going to get make a lot of money. And if it sucks, you're out. It's a very eat what you kill setup and a lot and multi-strats. So like Citadel, 0.72, Millennium, they're all sort of run like that super eat what you kill. And yeah, I mean, we we were definitely no exception. Like the folks who go, the guys who started my desk at Millennium, right? They were basically there because it's kind of funny in retrospect, but it's a classic Wall Street guy thing, right? They don't want to run a business. <laughs> they want to they want to show up. They want to sit in front of the monitors. They want to trade, but they don't want to set up a fund or do fundraising or, or back office, middle office, right? Compliance. They don't want to do any of that shit. They want to do the you know, I guess for them, right? What 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 is sort of the fun, the fun shit? How how much of your life was like the show Billions? How accurate is the show Billions in re- in retrospect to real life? I tried to watch. I tried to watch. Yeah, I tried to watch Billions. I mean, I think the thing, the thing that a lot of those shows get wrong about, like especially about like material non public information, is that for the most part, everybody at hedge fund is scared shitless. Of especially now that the SEC chases these things down like criminally as well as civilly, right? Everyone is fucking scared of like a- a- any because 
in the, in the criminal setting, like it's going to be a jury of your peers. And I mean, finances for, you know, rightly or wrongly, it's more complicated than a lot of things. And so the ideal that you would be sitting there explaining, you know, market microstructure to, <laughs> to some guy who lives in one of my apartments, right? You're like, oh, fuck, like that's, that's probably a situation I should try not to get in. And the compliance oversight is also why. Right. Like I remember one time one of the guys on my desk went to a, a basketball game with his mom. Compliance is calling him first thing Monday morning. Who 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 took you? Which broker took you to that basketball game? And he's he's texted about it with people. That's how they and they so they're reading the text and they're calling him saying, You didn't disclose that you were going to a basketball game with, you know, who on the sell side took you to the game? And he's like, What the fuck? He's like, I just took my mom to a basketball game. Right. So <laughs> I think the thing that gets a lot of play, whether it's billions or other media, is that there's a lot of people who are sort of down for various flavors of of moral ambiguity. And my experience was kind of not like that. Like there's a lot of smart people who are aggressive and motivated by money, but there's not a lot of room to do morally ambiguous things. Yeah. If you want to do that, you just go into Congress and then you can do all that you want. You can trade on any idea that you want. That's, that's, it's more of a political path. Why are you kind of wanting people to get off their seat? Like what's keeping people's ass in seats on Wall Street as opposed to jumping? Is it purely money, like the next bonus or what causes most people to hang around longer? It sounds like if like maybe you hadn't gotten kicked off uh, your desk in 18, I'm not saying you'd still be there, but maybe you would. Like what keeps you there? I think what keeps you there... Hmm different for different folks but i think that like to to there's a lot of people who are afraid of the void right there's a lot of people who would say okay well you know i don't even 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 if you say i have got enough money put together like i could do this for a while i think there are a lot of people who look at the the void and say eh, it's you know it's easier for somebody to direct deposit this money into my account as opposed to me like having you out and like do something like make something for it. And I think in particular for folks who are on the street, the, the prospect of running a business is like really, really terrible. <laughs> like, I mean, I did back in the day, right? Like operations, I was like, oh my God, this is this sounds fucking terrible. Like, can I just go back to like playing around in Excel and like writing code and like reading research? Like that's way more fun. And yeah. I think that you need to be a certain type of sicko to be like, I'm going to leave this fucking comfort and do something <laughs> and do something into nothing, make something out of nothing. Right. I think that's a big, so even, even more so than the money. Cause I think a lot of people you could say, Hey, we're going to, you know, it's not as much, but you, we're going to, we can set this thing up so that you have some degree of like personal comfort in your lifestyle or whatever. And they would still say no, because that, that path is, is addicting. And there's a lot of certainty around it. Whereas the void is just totally, that's what, I mean, honestly, that's what I love about it. I love, I love the, the ambiguity. I love the, I can do whatever the fuck I want. That's my big thing, honestly. What kind of code were you writing? So I, my first job in a hedge fund was when I was in college and it was, it was VBA, which ugh, terrible <laughs> by the time, you know, I'm, I'm even today, I'm, I'm pretty much a hundred percent Python. I can do some JavaScript. I can do some TypeScript, but Python is is my favorite, and it's a it's a super friendly language, right? You're not I'm not 
sending rockets into space or any shit like that. I'm not doing high frequency trading, so I don't need to do no, no C, no C++, but yeah, Python. And you were writing code at the hedge fund to what? Make better trades or like, why were you coding? Yeah, so there was a lot of like geospatial data. So we would be looking at weather a lot. We'd be looking at crop conditions at various levels of granularity, right? And there's honestly there's a, sh- a shitload of that kind of data, right? The price data is not super complicated because we're longer term. We don't need to know what's going on second to second. But with respect to like fundamental geospatial data that would help us back into what we thought sort of like fundamental supply demand was going to do. Yeah, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of that, a lot of scraping Indian government websites about import, export, right? Just, you know, try, trying to find some kind of edge in, in a pile of, of you know, data of, of dubious quality. <laughs> I love it. All right. What are you doing today? We can talk about your lending platform. I think you're also an owner operator of sorts. Like, how would you describe what you do today? Yeah. So today, there are sort of three businesses, and they all came about, you know, from the the, the original crack house at one. <laughs> so today, we own and operate 300 units of affordable housing in Connecticut. For the most part, I would say that you know. Like I picked up 25 units back in June. I'm probably going to do pick up at least another 100 next year because I think this is a great environment for buying non-performing loans. Like I've seen a bunch of that flow in the last month, which which has been so very quiet the last two years. The other two businesses, then we do commercial construction, general contracting, and and roofing for the most part. That's a business. Yeah, it's a I'm, tough. Kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. I mean, roofing, roofing is, you You must spend a shitload of money on roofing. How much oh, money yeah. do you spend on fucking roofing? A lot of fucking money. <laughs> <laughs> Our roofers living well. Do you, because that's a, that's a whole thing in Texas, right? Like everybody's roofs get wiped out. Like every, I guess it's different with, with EPDM than, than the, the resi shingle, right? But like the hail, like, don't you guys, like, aren't you, aren't you like rotating roofs pretty quickly down there? I've never, no, I mean, I don't think so. No. I mean, if we are compared to what, I don't know what that'd be compared to, but uh, like compared to other parts of the country, we don't get hail here. I don't know. That's a great question. I don't know. So that's one part. So I hired, so we basically, I think like a lot of people who do real estate enough said, listen, this construction thing is terrible and it's the biggest risk to our business. So why don't we just build it in the house? <laughs> um, so we've been doing our, uh, all of our, for the most part, we acquire things that are distressed, right? So we've been doing that internally since 20, I guess, 20 end of 2019 now. And then because we've sort of finished up a lot of our internal projects, we said, you know, we got a great crew. Why would we kind of just let that go? So we started doing the, you know, the work as a, as a third party general contractor and, and roofer, you know, with a focus on like retail, like clients, industrial. We don't really work for, I tweeted about this yesterday. We don't really work for like ourselves because we are a terrible, <laughs> we're a terrible client. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so that's one. And uh, one of my childhood friends actually came, moved out here to to run that business back in Feb. So that's been really cool. And the third and final business is, is lending, which has been a wild one to be in of late. Private credit has been fucking crazy. What's been crazy? Let's 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 start there. Like what what are you seeing right now? I mean the the yeah the cost of capital is up, but also like the volatility has been fucking wild. 
like you know you you i hop on i don't have a terminal anymore because i'm uh i'm poor but you hop on yahoo finance right and you say oh my god like the 10 the tenure just moves 15 basis points in a day like it's nothing it's wild and what is it you how how did it move historically like for anybody listening like if it's 15 basis points now what do you what would you expect in normal times I mean, daily volatility, you know, for, for the tenure, I mean, if it was doing something like 15, 20 basis points, it's because there was a Fed meeting or something, right? And now it's just whipping around like that on, on not very, I mean, on CPI prints, but even on nothing, right? And so that's, that has been painful because not only have, you know, cost of capital for us, I and mean, we have back leverage with banks, and obviously that's a floating rate. So that's gone up, which has sucked. But not only has that going up sucked, right? Spreads have also blown out, right? So the volatility in in rates markets have meant that, you know, now MBS pricing relative to the Treasury's curve, the spread between those two things is way wider. And, you know, one of the reasons for that is a lot of this, a lot of the guys who securitize investment, you know, loans secured by real estate for investment, a lot of them went bankrupt in the last nine months because historically you didn't. They, I mean, they don't hedge, right? They just have this big, they got hundreds of millions of dollars of these loans that they're packaging up and they don't hedge them because rates don't move that much. And when they do, they tend to rally. So we actually make money on it. But then, you know, this year rates fucking sold off and the tenure went from, you know, that one handle 18 months ago to having four handle. And all these guys went from selling, they thought they were going to sell this, you know, $150 million pool of shit at 108. And they end up selling at 96. <laughs> and so then they, then you can't make payroll. Then you can't, you know, so a lot of them just gone in in a period of like 60 days, right? So how, I think, how, how much are we talking here? Like how many folks are, are calling it quits? Is this? Oh, I mean, it was our, I think of our five biggest counterparties, three of them went out of business in like 30 days. Holy cow. The fourth one, and and so we we do two things, right? We do we do balance sheet lending because we have facilities with banks that we put the the stuff in. We have a crowdfunding platform for things that don't meet those criteria as well, right? So we do balance sheet, and then we also you know would sell to institutional buyers because there was a a big sort of permanent bid for that stuff over the last couple of years. And I mean, those guys are they're fucking done. <laughs> like, there's not that many players left. The only players who still exist are guys who basically have, you know, captive capital, who've got a fund or a, a REIT or some, some vehicle that's a relatively permanent source of capital. Everybody who is reliant on, all right, we're going to fill up the bucket and then we're going to dump it on capital markets. Those guys are those guys are fucking gone. And they were filling up the bucket by just getting a line of credit with a big bank, borrowing all that, lending it out at a spread, and then hoping to get that shit out the door as quickly as possible. Well, and that's and so that's the other problem. A lot of their facilities are like 30, 60, 90 day facilities. <laughs> and so, you know, you're you're like, well, you know, if I sell this shit today, we're gonna get fucking rocked. But at the same time, if you don't sell it, you're also fucked because you have to buy it out of the facility within that, not, you know, you've either got to buy it out or take it out somehow of that facility in a pretty short time frame. So what happens when these things go belly up? Like what happens to all the loans? I, I'm assuming they just sell them at a distressed price. Who, who's buying all these, these pools of loans when these companies are going out? Who's the next buyer? 
So it there's sort of it depends on on who you are, right? So a lot of the securitizations they just priced at a place that reflected the the volatility and the stress in rates markets. And so, like I said, guys were guys were thinking they would sell this shit at one hundred six, where they sort of used to, and they ended up trading at ninety four. Right? It's a big swing. It's, it's your entire quarter revenue fucking going, you know, flipping flipping <laughs> the sign on it. So like yeah. that, there was a lot of that, right? Where they just they just had to get the shit out the door. They sold it a big loss. Done, right? We've seen, and I'm just starting to get tapes on these now, we have seen some of the guys who sell to those guys, right, who got stuck with shit on their books, and now they're looking to sell it, you know, somewhere in the 90, piecemeal, right? So it, it depends on what where you are in sort of the, the ecosystem. But yeah, for the, for the most part, there's, there's a mix of people who just took the, took the big hit and said, you know, fuck this, we're closing up shop. And then there's a class of folks who are, you know, smaller, probably like us, who don't really have the capacity to balance sheet. And they're 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 in various states of, you know, what do we do? Do we sell it? Do we sit? Do we, you know, so. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but is this the beginning of a, a string of this? Like, are we just at the, the beginning or is are, are we through a lot of it like how do you think about that is or is it's hard to say yeah for the paper it's hard to say i mean the financial system is way more and especially like the piping behind like short term lending and this kind of thing bank to bank i mean a lot so for right all this stuff is way more shored up than it was the last time this happened but it's also the case that liquidity is one of those things where you know if until you really need it, you'd say, oh, it's fucking great. I think one of the things that's, that, that's exciting to me as somebody who does buy, I mean, we've been originating loans more so than buying secondary, right? But as someone who kind of came to this game as a buyer of distressed loans, I'm super excited because I don't really believe that things are going to be that fucking bad. Because if you just look at the leverage that's in the system, it's not what it was last time around. And I actually feel really good about, it depends on the market, right? But I feel good broadly about the collateral. And so, you know, if you think the collateral's fine and you're looking at picking up some 12-month paper that's got nine months left on it at, you know, 90-something, right? That, in my opinion, is pr- is a pretty good return. It's, a, it's, it's not free money, but I think it's pretty solid. So, you know, crystal ball, hard to say where the fuck rates and, and, and all this stuff will go in sort of nominal terms. But I think you're going to shake out. And I'm, this is kind of what I'm seeing with like the, the non-performing loan flow I've seen, right? The people who are getting shaken out now are the people who on the equity side, when they did their underwrite, they said, oh, we're going to get agency to take us out through something. <laughs> Those people are in trouble. Those people are fucked. Now, is everybody else fucked? <laughs> Probably not as badly as that. So, you know, that's I'm I'm looking at a couple of things right now where it's exactly that, right? Bridge paper. So it's all bridge paper, floating paper that was hoping to get to a permanent agency in the threes. This is not like fixed rate debt at five no. that people are not performing on because I mean, they're shitty that operators. That shit always happens idiosyncratically. And like, yeah. I do see that from banks, but, you know, people do dumb shit. I've done dumb shit. Like yeah. you can't read. There's you like not risk. Like a big, oh, I like risk. <laughs> <laughs> um, I um, yeah. There's not like a big. There's not a big. You can't. There's no narrative there. There's no. There's no play per se. Yeah. Okay. Let's just go a little deeper. So everything you're seeing right now that's non-performing is a floating rate, probably 
bought within the last 12 months? Like, give me your general, like, what are you seeing come through now? Is this office stuff? Is this any asset mm-hmm. type? It's basically, like, yeah, yeah, great question. So oh, it's gosh. basically, there's there's two classes, right? There's office <laughs> and then there's, and then there's like short-term paper who thought there was going to be a long-term takeout somewhere cheap. And, and like what's happening in office? Because I, I mean, I'm, I'm not asking you to put your like office operator hat on, but like if you are a lender, like is there a, is there a price at which you would loan on like a class B shitty suburban office building in Nowersville, Alabama? Or is it, or is it, is it like the cost of the dirt minus the cost of demo minus another margin of safety? Like, how do you even lend on what we'll call the have nots of office that might not ever see a tenant again without major capex? Yeah, the only office that we have on the balance sheet is owner occupied, and it's like small mixed use stuff. And that stuff works right now. Yeah, yeah, that stuff's fine. It's funny that banks banks have always hated that shit. And to me, I've always been like, this doesn't make sense that you hate this. This seems pretty all right. I mean, my office, uh, I'm sitting in my office, a small mixed use building. Like, I, I don't see, I don't see that. I don't get the hatred for that, right? I mean, the stuff that I've seen where I'm just like, I don't know what anyone would do with it is like, it. I mean, it is like your A, definitely B is like a wasteland. But even the A shit, right? You're kind of like, I don't know what the play would be with this. Like everybody is taking that down. Headcount's coming down a lot in addition to people just not working offices. And like, you know, I I feel like, and this is one of the things that I've, I've tried to be better about and probably one of the biggest things I've learned in this business is that when I look at shit, there's sort of like two dimensions along which it can, it can sort of land. And one of them is like money and one of them is like brain. And like, I'm, I'm, I'll do something small if it's not going to hurt my brain too much. But like the office shit is big, which is good, but it feels like it's going to hurt my brain a lot. Like yeah. <laughs> just figuring out what to do with it. So I I don't fuck with that. And to me, it just seems like yeah, I just don't know where you. I don't know where you mark this collateral. Right, that's the biggest problem. Because even if I was going to say, all right, I could end up with the asset, but you know what? I'm not going to be the guy who repositions it. I'm going to unload it. Okay. <laughs> what are you going to sell it for? Like, right? So, because I've I've bought loans secured by shit that I don't want anything to do with. Like, I bought loans secured by funeral homes. I bought loans secured by all kinds of shit. But I, but you know, every one of them, I was like, you know what? This has a a, a fire sale. I call it a chuck value. This has a chuck value, and it, I think it's this. The office. I'm just like like oh. fifty, <laughs> like fifty, some fifty percent occupied office in Fairfield County. I love Fairfield County, but like. Okay, what are you going to do with it? So what what happens when a non-performing loan's coming down the pipe that you like? Like how how does it work on your end? You you get presented an offer to buy a loan, then what all happens? Like how do you make money on it? I would say a lot of our on the on the NPL side, I would say a lot of our edge actually comes from our ability to source. So there's not a lot of usually when I'm bidding on something, I kind of am the only bid. So a lot of the edge comes in that. And I'll never I'll never forget the first bad loan that I bought. It was a, it was secured by a 20-ish unit building in one of my markets. And it was probably, the building was probably worth one and a half. And the loan was like 400 grand. And I'm on, a, I'm on the phone at the bank, right? The head of credit at the bank. And she goes, you know, there's no way you would sell this at a discount. 
because it's just so over collateralized. And I said, all right, well, would you take 85 cents on the dollar? She said, yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and that was, that was so um, priested because like every other, for the most part, for the most part, every other experience has been like that, right? You're talking about loans. I mean, the biggest package of shit I've ever bought was like 6 million, right? So you're talking about shit that's like too small for anyone who's like big to care. And so a lot of times you're the only bit. And so, hey, 85, whatever, that's, that's fucking close enough. So, you know, that's, that's the way it will go, right? Something will come in. Usually it's like outbound that leads to someone saying, oh yeah, we have this, what, what, what would your price be? And then, you know, a lot of this shit, I mean, this is true of almost everything I own, including, including my office. You know, I don't get to go in them or really diligence anything. It's me just saying, I feel like this price I can't lose at. And then from there, you know, there's there's always some back and forth about the the purchase and sale agreement, blah, blah, blah. But usually that's pretty straightforward. And then from there, you know, you're into you're into probably my favorite part, which is trying to get the asset. So you want the asset. If you're buying a loan, you want it. Typically, yes. Typically. You're not looking to make a deal with the current borrower. (laughs) Yeah. There, there are times where like that works. I think the problem is that in my experience, a lot of the folks who get into these situations are definitionally not going to be able to get out of them. And so then the question becomes, you know, what's the next best? And I have had a couple where I pushed like the funeral home was pushed to a sale, right? So I've had a couple of things like that where you can push somebody, but realistically, right? How are you getting out of it? It's going to be a refire sale and refi is going to be tough. Okay, so I I'm gonna be the 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 borrower of a loan that I'm defaulted on. That's bridge. You just bought it for eighty five cents on the dollar. You got a good deal on it. Then you're just sending me a, a FedEx letter certified that says, "Hey, welcome to Daddy, Daddy. Welcome to the Rumble Zone, baby. Yeah. Here we go, baby. <laughs> Daddy much. now owns the loan. And then what are you offering me? Are you saying here are your new loan terms, or here's when your next payments due? Like, how, how are you communicating with me? Yeah, so usually I don't waste because Connecticut is a judicial foreclosure state. So I don't usually, and, and most of the Northeast is, so I don't really waste time with, I mean, I'll send a, a if they haven't accelerated the loan, right? Or sent a, a notice of default, right? I'll do those. But that's more of a dot my I's, cross my T's. Usually the foreclosure starts within a week. And then... I like to have contact with the, it's, it's not always possible, but I do like to have contact with the borrower or their counsel, especially in a situation where there's a PG or something, because usually, and this differs a lot from your banks, your, your conventional lenders, right? Because a lot of those guys don't know what they want. <laughs> they, they don't want the asset. They want to get paid off, but they don't, but they, and, and they, like, there's, it's not really clear what they're playing for, right? Whereas with me and a lot of these setups, like, I do want the asset. And so usually if there's a PG, right, I'll just say, hey, listen, there's one of two ways this can go. My counsel is very experienced with commercial litigation of this sort. And in his opinion, there's a decent chance that I, I'm going to own the collateral and probably everything else you own. And so if you don't want that to happen, simple. I'm happy to release you from any deficiency judgment or any 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 anything forever, but you're going to have to do a deed and lit. And that works most of the time. What's a deed and lieu? So a deed and lieu foreclosure, right? So basically, you you're going the creditor's going to the debtor and saying, "Hey, you can just convey the asset to me, and I'm going to waive. You know, I'm going to release you from any other associated liability, whether that's deficiency judgment, a deficiency. 
Deficiency meaning the difference between what my sort of payoff is on the debt and the value of the asset, right? So I get into a lot of those situations because a bank is three years into some battle, right? Racked up this massive tab, way bigger than the asset value. And I can come in and pay a discount even to the principal on the loan and then go to the borrower and say, listen, I'm going to do you a solid here, but you're going to have to do me a solid because I don't want to do this litigation for another three years, right? Yeah. And so then they, 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 you sent me that we, you and I got on the phone, we talked crack houses, you then gave me, you gave me my deed in lieu of foreclosure offer. I decided to take that offer. Now what happens? So one of two things will happen if there's a lot of like subsequent encumbrancers, which, which does happen, you know, I'll usually have to see out the foreclosure action anyways, if there's not, and it's kind of just you and me right, then I would, then that's kind of it, right? Usually the, usually the conveyance instrument in a deed in lieu foreclosure is just a, just a quick claim deed. So I own the asset, I own the note, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, release the note. And then depending on, you know, where the asset is, right, I'm going to either, you know, do CapEx or move right into leasing. Or if it's something that I'm, I don't think makes sense for the portfolio, you know, I'm, I'm a broker, I'll, I'll list it and see what happens on, on that side. And is it fair to say that a lot of your competitors don't actually want to own the asset or most of the people in your kind of niche want to own it? So that's, that differentiates you is if you're buying a loan, you're really trying to get your hand on the asset. I remember one of the first loans I bought, it was secured by two buildings. One was eight units, one was 12. And the bank had been foreclosed on this guy for four years. <laughs> and and I, I actually, I actually knew his defense. The counsel who was doing the defense, I actually had had it. He'd done shit for me, so I saw his name and I called him and I said, "Hey, man, what the fuck is going on with this?" <laughs> and he said, "He said the bank doesn't know what to do." And I said, "Well, does your guy want the assets?" And he's like, "No, he doesn't want the fucking assets." And I'm like, <laughs> "Okay, well, would he just give them to me?" And he's like, "Yeah, of course." So you know, a week later, a week, a week later, I, yeah, I've got the the deed where it's over. Right. And so that that was one. I mean, they had probably racked up somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 grand in legal to do this thing. And it it just didn't make any sense. Right. I mean, it was a New York bank that got caught up in some Connecticut shit that they probably shouldn't have fucked with. But it was it was it's weird. Right. It's weird because, you know, you you're hiring counsel, you're doing all this stuff with the end goal of getting paid off. But the guy's not going to be able to refi. And probably can't sell because the balance on the note at this point is huge. So you're probably going to get the asset, but like that was, you never wanted that. Right. So it's, it's a weird dynamic where the bank is like, you know, you know, we're, oh, we're going to fuck you up. And then they're like, all right, well, hit me, motherfucker. And then they, they're like, no, no, never mind. Never mind. We don't want it, especially with like industrial and, and shit where there could be environmental. Right. They don't want to be in the chain of title ever, period. So it's it's a weird it's a weird dynamic. So there's a, there's a good structural reason, I guess, for shitheads like me to exist. <laughs> <laughs> so then you get the asset. Are you then like, have you kind of underwritten it? It's like, okay, once we get this asset, we got to do X, Y, and Z to it to create value. Or no, it's we get the asset and then we're immediately going to go hire a broker and fire sell this thing. Depends on the asset, right? I would say if yeah. it's sort of like my bread and butter, which is you know, small sub, which is like sub commercial multi up to like 25 units. 
then we're probably going to sit with it. I'm a big fan of, I mean, I think Moses, you, Moses, I mean, I think a lot of the guys on Twitter, one of the things I've, I've picked up from you fucking geniuses is that you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't sell real estate. <laughs> it's dumb. It's terrible. It's, it's, it, it, it's a, in a lot of cases worse than if you just continue to operate it. So I, that's my preference by a, by a wide, wide margin. But if it's something where there's like a, it's something I'm cons- if it's something that makes sense for like an owner occupant, then probably I'm selling it because there's some business, some operating business associated with it, which I have enough of those. So that's yeah, that's and and I'm trying to get better. Back in the in the old days, I would just say, oh fuck it, like we were getting this shit cheap, like let's let's do it. But now I look at it and go, okay, well you know the capex is going to be sucky. You know I'm I'm much more trying to do things that from a brain damage perspective or, or I, I call it dollars per brain um, makes sense. I'm going to tell you about a little story and you tell me what you think about this because it kind of goes to what you were talking about earlier. So I I didn't know this individual, but it's a friend of mine in YPO who knew this guy, and he was an attorney. And he made a fortune in 08, 09, and 10. And here's what he would do. He would go to people that were that were not performing on their loans, that were clearly underwater. And he would say, look, I think I can help you. And they'd say, great, what can you do? And he'd say, well, send me your loan documents. Let me read your loan documents. And he would go through the loan documents and realize quickly, because again, 05, 6, 7, 8, like banks were just, I mean, who knows who was writing oh, these yeah. things, but he'd <laughs> right. go through a loan document and see so many discrepancies and the total loan amount was written different in different places. Were, they, were the borrowers mostly owner occupants? I don't know that, but but because these were like multifamily properties. I mean, these were lots of investment grade properties. Oh, but, were, oh okay, got it. Got but it. you had people that were you just had big institutions that were making loans so fast. Like who was checking all these loan documents, especially like the big loan documents with thousands, you know, hundreds of pages. So anyway, his whole deal was: here's what I'm gonna do. You tr- you transfer me. I'm gonna take over the property. You owe no more payments. And then he would sue the bank and basically just say, like, you don't have a good loan here and I'm going to hold you up in court. And he would hold that bank in court for 12, 18, 24. I mean, it, he just kept it until the bank finally was like, all right, we're done. Like, it's yours. We're, we're, we're out of it. And he did this consecutively. So what about what I just said resonates with you? Is that and that's not an old wives tale. That is a that is a real thing that happened. Is that something that happens normally? I mean, this guy made hundreds of millions of dollars. I've heard he's made so much money doing this. And now I'm seeing, okay, we've been in a hot time, lots of loans getting done quickly. Like, is that going to happen again? It's super interesting, right? I think, so this guy, he's, he's the law firm and he's the principal. On the, on the yeah, deal. I think he just went oh, out and became amazing. like his own. He just was a legal minded principal that left and did this full time. And so I guess maybe the question is also like from the bank standpoint, if you have a, a f- like if you have discrepancies in the loan doc and maybe that changed after 2010, like there was some law written and it just seems crazy to me that you could hold a loan in court so long and you just kind of bleed it out. So and you don't have to make stuff, payments on it while it's in court, correct? While the well, loan is in court, there's no payments being made. I mean, you can always not make payments, but the the thing that'll the thing that can get you, and it honestly comes down to the lender, right? I've seen lenders say because I I read a shitload of dockets, right? I've seen lenders say, "Hey, listen, 
our penalty rate, the the statutory, there's no statutory max in Connecticut, but the, the rate on tax liens in Connecticut is 18. So a judge generally won't give you more than 18, right? But I've seen lenders say, hey, listen, technically you owe us three years of this 18%. But also technically, fuck you, we would, we would love to never see you again. <laughs> so we'll take the principle. <laughs> we'll take the principle and we'll, we'll we'll wave goodbye, right? So that, so, so you know, I, I think the thing that, the, the commercial, so there's two, there's two worlds, right? For, for, for mortgages, there's commercial business purpose loan, pretty not regulated. Some states like Arizona and California is more regulated, but for the most part, pr- pretty unregulated. And then you've got households. So owner occupants, owner occupants. I mean, I have seen, I've seen in court self reps, like there's this one dude, he's fucking infamous. He's been at it for like, I think 11 years at this point. And he, I mean, this guy will never lose his house. He will never, like, it, I mean, as soon as he got up there, everyone was like, oh, fuck, not this guy. And, <laughs> I mean, it was, it's, so you, in, in order occupied world, because it's heavily regulated and you can always, you always have the right of reinstatement. So you could always show up with a duffel bag of cash and say, here it is, reinstate my loan, right? Whereas in commercial, once you accelerate the balance, it's, it's really hard to, to kind of like get back on track, but you can do things. I mean, I've seen this in, if you can, if you can believe this, I'm a bit of a magnet for litigation. <laughs> I've seen this firsthand where, you know, the judicial system is supposed to kind of do things within reason and it's supposed to, but if you get someone who grabs that thing and says, no, no, fuck this, we're just going to make this suck for everybody. They can do that. And so, yeah, it's, it's a matter of conveying. If you can convey to the creditor that this is going to fucking suck and you should not want to do this with me. <laughs> you you could make that happen. I mean, forget forget about the discrepancies in the loan docs, right? You could have pristine loan docs and say, I am fucking crazy. This is going to be terrible. Do you want this? And they could be like, mm, not really. <laughs> like, not my money. Shareholders will be okay with it. And you're telling me I don't have to see your fucking face again? <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. Right? I actually want to own a bank one day. I borrowed enough from them to go. I would like to be on the other side. Dude. Having said that, Dude. I never want to own a bank and get a call from you and go, fuck. <laughs> Here we go. Not that guy. I also want to own a bank. It seems like an incredible fucking business. Maybe we could do it together one day. I, I, I seriously, if there was another business I'd go start, it's probably a bank, which. Dude, I have taped to my fridge at home a list of the smallest nationally chartered banks in Connecticut by assets. I still don't, I don't, I don't know exactly how that works or how, how any of this would work, but believe me, I'm, 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 I'm ready for it. When I do my pushups in the morning, I look at it. Do you want to tell the millions and millions and millions of people that listen to this every day? No, I'm kidding. How you source some of these non-performing loans. You said that's your edge. How, to the extent you're willing to share, like what, how do you, how do you find all this stuff? Yeah. No, that's a great question. So there's, there's, there is a relationship piece, right? So if you know the banks who are, and it is mostly banks, right? Credit unions will do some of this, but you're talking about like, it has to be like the one, two, three biggest credit unions in your market. For the most part, credit unions exist to be like a friendlier bank and lend to members, right? I've seen credit unions that have lent to members and they won't foreclose on them because their dad and their granddad and everybody's at the, and I'm like, yeah, but, but like, have you actually made that much money? And they're like, no, no, but we don't want to hurt their feelings. And they won't sell it to me either because they don't want me to hurt their feelings, right? Yeah. So credit unions are are not great, but like local banks, if you know them, like you will some, it's funny because that's not even enough to get the look necessarily because people who work in credit departments at banks don't think about the shit until it's on their desk. So like, 
Number one, know all the active commercial lenders who are local because you're going to have an easier time with locals than like I've watched it out of securitization. Don't do that. It's terrible. <laughs> it's nobody's money. Nobody cares. And, and you're going to have to pay par. Guaranteed you're going to have to pay par. So know the banks, but moreover, watch land records, watch land records, watch dockets, right? Whatever your mark, wherever you are, if it's if it's non-judicial, watch land records. Even if it's judicial, watch land records, right? Because that's the first the first place it shows up publicly in terms of distress is going to be that Liz Pendens, right? Is going to be that tax lien. Is going to be that whatever. And I have I have code that basically watches my markets for me and lets me know when there are interesting things happening. And then and then like it should be super event driven your outreach, right? Because again, the people who are in these credit seats don't think about this shit until it hits the fan. And so then you've already gotten coffee with somebody, you've gotten a beer with somebody, and you hit up and say, hey man, I see, <laughs> this happens to me all the time. Hey man, I see you guys have this. And you're like, what the fuck? I didn't know about that. And you're like, well, <laughs> you're going to know about it soon. So like, can we do something? And and that's kind of how it goes. So, you know, and then like, I'm in the process because we're coming into a, a, a macro period where I think there is going to be more activity and more interesting stuff, right? I'm starting to try to go even upstream from the list pendants, right? So who's not paying taxes? Even before it gets to the tax lien stage, right? Who are commercial property owners who are six months, 12 months behind on taxes, right? Usually that kind of technical default, and this is something that, you know, as a lender myself, I would I don't sweat too hard, but banks hate this. Like you're a guy who pays five days late every month. God, that just I don't know why, but it really gets to right shit like that. Oh, you, you, we have to call you to get you to pay your taxes. Ah, I hate that. So those are examples, right, of guys where a bank is not going to generally not going to throw someone into technical default for paying their taxes late or chronically paying the mortgage late or what have you, right? But it might bother them enough to sell it to me at a slight discount, and then we can go in and be aggressive about it, right? So that's those are sort of the those are the major channels, and you want all of your outreach. And I've done it the other way. I've been like, hey, this is me. This is what we do. You know, do you guys have anything? And they're like, oh, that's super cute. But no, <laughs> and, and we're cutest little business. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's super. That's super adorable. You do that, but no, fuck you. We don't have anything right now, and they might have something the next day. But they don't know that, right? So you want to yeah. you want to make it super event driven in terms of the outreach. Like that's like you're going to have a high response from. Yeah, you don't sound so bad when you say, "Hey, this is Kyle with Cutie Pie Lending. We want to buy Kyle any with kid, kid loves lending." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's that's another funny angle to the thing, right? A lot of these banks don't want to be mean to the borrower. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and credit unions, especially, like I said earlier, have this thing where the credit unions are like. We can't foreclose on this guy, but maybe you can. And yeah. it's it's a weird dynamic because you're like, isn't this like a, a business thing? Like, like, didn't they fuck up? Like, don't they owe you money? But they're like, no, no, we don't want to. We don't want to hurt our deposit base. We don't want to. We don't want to be the bad guy. So yeah, there is a there's a there's an opportunity in the market for a bad guy. <laughs> if you were going to just spin up. And you kind of mentioned the Connecticut markets, but is your model scalable to where you could just spin up in any market by deploying that code, tracking the same public filings? I'm assuming every state files publicly tax lien or any deferred tax, any foreclosures. And so it's a scalable model. It's like it's not like you can only do it in certain markets. You could do this all over. Yeah, you could do it anywhere. The only difference between markets is going to be, honestly, Connecticut is probably one of the worst ones to do this in because we have land records in every town. 
and we have like 221 towns. So that's a shit show in places like Texas where it's a county level thing. It's probably a lot easier. And then, yeah, then it's just a matter of getting to know counterparties. I mean, for me, the reason I tend to keep it to the Northeast is because I'm a big, you know, it cuts against my Wall Street background, but I am a big operator. And I have a hard time, like, unless it was decent size and I was going to move into a new market, I would have a hard time sort of justifying buying paper in other places. And then I think it, you know, then it becomes, okay, if I'm going to buy paper in a place where I don't want the asset, I'm, I'm just like the lender. Like, what's the difference? Maybe my basis is a little bit better. But like, I don't have all the tools in my in my fun little toolbox, you know, that I would normally have. And so, you know, maybe at some point we'll make a push somewhere. But, you know, for now I live here and it's fun to, fun to do shit here. What is a prevent foreclosure loan besides exactly what it says, a loan that helps prevent foreclosure? Like <laughs> what is happening in that loan that would categorize it as its own type of loan? So for the most part, and, and I would say this actually when we started lending, and this was actually a big mistake that we made when we started lending, because we were coming from buying non-performing loans, right? We figured, well, we should lend to people who are fucked because they'll pay anything. And that's fine. And that that's one of those things where if you're a Wall Street guy, you would look at the math and say, oh, this is you can't fucking lose doing this. And you can't, but you can hurt your fucking head doing it. Because a lot of the people who are in those situations, they're not going to be repeat borrowers, right? You're going to get off a $1 million, $1.5 million, 500K loan, and that's it. Like you taught, you had to teach somebody how to take out a loan a lot of times, and they're going to do one loan ever in their life, right? And you're like, hey, it's going to be 40 LTV and it's going to be a teen sort of rate, but it's not a, it's not a business. It's more of a sick hobby. Right. So, so we used to do a lot of special situations, kind of shit like that, where there's a guy who's in foreclosure, nobody will lend to him. Right. But the asset value's there and we'll, we'll lend him the money to get him out of it. Right. And maybe we'll get the asset. Maybe we won't, but that's not a great business. Right. So today, the business for the origination side of the, of the, of the house is way more about basically helping folks. I mean, Leave an example. Last quarter, we closed a guy's loan in four days, right? And he's an investor and he comes in a few times a month for the same sort of thing, right? So that is more how that business has sort of grown up, I would say, is that we look to be efficient, straightforward debt capital from guys who have experience on the equity side, right? I mean, that's one of the things that I think killed me when I was early on in this game. I would get questions from these guys and, you know, I'm I'm not like hilariously young anymore, but back in the day, like, okay, some guy who's like two years out of Baylor is asking me questions about this deal. And I'm like, buddy, what the fuck do you know about this? Like, <laughs> you're asking me if I got boiler insurance? That's not a real thing, right? Like I, I would get, in, in underwriting, I would get questions that didn't make any sense and I hated it, right? So I yeah. think that we've tried to put together a business that puts, that does kind of put the borrower's headspace, wellness, you know, ahead of other things and prioritizes execution speed, right? So we've gotten away from those one-off loans. Okay. What's an Airbnb vacation rental loan? So these are actually super not popular at the moment, but they were very hot earlier in the year and we did some of them. So 
Air DNA, which back when I did the STR thing, they were super nascent and, and I actually bought data from them. They were really cool. But you can get to a place where, and we don't balance sheet these because it's like a 30-year term, but somebody who's buying a vacation, an asset, usually single family, with the intention of putting it on Airbnb, right, can can do an underwrite with the AirDNA data to get to, you know, a, a DSCR and you know, going to pay a little bit more than they would if it was on a long-term lease, but hopefully make up for it on on kind of the revenue side of it, right? So that's one of the things that the capital markets have stopped buying <laughs> pretty much completely, if you can believe it. So, but yeah, that was that was hot earlier this year. There was a lot of that, and they're just they're not buying them because they're they're bearish on the short-term rental market. It's just not it's not proven out to be what it was, or they're just bearish on travel, or why why is it not popular? It's interesting. I find that a lot of times those are all great reasons, but a lot of times it's simply that capital markets don't want it. And it doesn't necessarily make like there's like there's almost never a nice narrative reason like that, right? It could just be that like the guy who sets the buy box woke up this morning and you know, he was like, you know what? I think hospitality is fucked. Because I drove by the Holiday Inn in my fucking town, and there were two cars in the parking lot. Yeah. Right? Like a lot of this, a lot of especially when you talk about securitization, a lot of the rules, and this is one of the fun things about us having a balance sheet, right? A lot of the rules that, in my opinion, don't necessarily impact the credit, the debt. Like, is it going to pay? They they get drug into the thing as if they reflect, as if they have something to do with the investment outcome. A lot of times, just an arbitrary rule. I'll give you a quick example. We, we for a while, were selling to a counterparty who got most of their money from insurers, and in particular, like PNC insurers. And they kind of, in a bunch of states, unilaterally moved the rates up by like a hundred basis points in in like a day with like no warning. Right? I'm just go, I'm just sitting there going, what do these guys know about Wisconsin and Georgia and this shit? Like, I, I haven't heard anything about these places. Like, what's going on? <laughs> And I asked them and they said, yeah, you know what? They got a bunch of premiums in these states already and they're too overweighted. So they don't want more. And I'm like, okay, got nothing to do with whether or not it's a good loan. Just, you know, just some guy with a box. Interesting. Well, that kind of goes to the next note I made, which was just banks. You, you had made a comment. I can't remember where I found it, but it said banks lend on their feelings, not necessarily their metrics. I'm a big I'm a big feelings guy. I think there's a lot. Of, I think there's a lot of feelings that creep into this shit. You know that that should or should not. But I think one of the things that's cool, and I guess a question I would have for you, right? I one of the things that I and I, it took me taking acid my bachelor party earlier this year to really to really to really put this into to really put this into words. Well, to get there, I think I think that. There's a there's a healthy amount of investing, which is sort of what I would call a hobby. There's a healthy amount of chasing alpha that I think is a, is a hobby. And, and what I mean by that is if you're a guy who's sort of like directionally punting assets, right? Just like, yeah, I think it could go up. I think it could go down. That to me is a hobby. I think it's hard to say that that's a, a business, right? To me, a business is something where you've spotted a structural opportunity, right, that you can sort of exploit, you know, capitalize on whatever you want to call it, sort of indefinitely, right? And so, like, for me, there are a lot of things in capital markets that I think are structural and don't always make sense. And they pop up, you know, with some regularity. And that's that's one of the things that makes me feel good about what I do relative to what I used to do 
trying to divine from the weather, you know, how much corn we're going to have. I feel like some of the things that I do now are just structurally fucked up. And I have a hard time seeing like how they get worked out. Right. So in your business, right. I mean, what's some, do you feel the same way about like, do you think you're a punter or are you, are you a guy running a business? And No, I think we're running a business. So we've got 46 people. I think, you know, I think I've tweeted about it, but the next few years, you'll actually see who's running a business and who is punting. There's a lot of people I think that punt that think they're running a business, but I could make an argument. You go buy 700,000 square feet in Houston, Texas with 280 tenants in there and you close and you wire them your money, you have a job that starts the next day. And if the market's you know free money and everything's going up, maybe you don't have to work as hard at it. But I would tell you, I think even the the best multifamily operator in the country, if they were to take over an industrial asset, there'd still be a learning curve. And so I think about our business purely as what you said is like, we are operators. We generate returns that I think other people can't purely because of how we operate. And anybody that's in our business totally understands what that means. You go tell like a stock trader that they're like, ah, yeah, like how much could you really be providing? Yeah. All the same. I'll just, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll hire another one next week. I, I would yeah. say you tell me how you're going to upload 280 leases into Yardy, get every covenant right and make sure it's ginning 30 days from now while starting to renew 20 leases, managing space, dealing with your forecasting, all these different things. I mean, owning an asset, depending on how good you are at it, there's a 200 point checklist to owning an asset. Who can get the best insurance? I mean, we just bought a deal in San Antonio, five and a half percent fixed. We closed on it two weeks ago. There's just a lot of people that aren't going to get that loan. It's just, that's an advantage we have. Do you think that sometimes your ability to operate hurts you? Meaning? Like, presumably when, when folks appraise it, they're going to appraise it on the basis of sort of the median operator, right? Not you. Or when you go to sell it, probably someone's going to underwrite and say, listen, this guy's operating margin is way too strong. We can't do this, right? Do you think there's any... Because I've, I've seen this, right? And yeah. it's not with industrial. It's with, with you know, crap that I own. But I'm like, you know what? This fucking sucks. I am the right guy to own this. And I don't think I could sell it to anyone else. Do like you, there's a you, point where, yeah, nobody's going to get the same value out of it that you get out right, of it kind of right. thing. Yeah, it's yeah, a good question. I mean, the answer is one, I probably haven't thought about it a ton. But for us, it's like, look, the more all we care about is like how much yield can we generate? How how long can you stay around the hoop with this asset forever? And and if the timing's right and we can sell it or we can recap it, like great. But if you ask everybody, like, what's our main purpose every day with every asset is like create as much cash flow as possible. And whether or not the next person can bite off on that, it will. It, our investors will do better. We can refinance. There's just more we can do with more cash flow. It gives us more options. But I, I do, I have, well, we've actually talked about that. It's like, look, we've sold some assets to some people, not saying they're not going to operate them as great, but you kind of like listen to them on the call when you're selling something, you do these big buyer calls and you can just tell like they are not <laughs> going to give this thing. Face. That was amazing. <laughs> well, they're just, they're not going to give this thing the same level because maybe they are punters or traders. Like they're actually not playing that game. Now I'll give you a, an example of, you know, where it works the other way. We bought a deal for 12 million. I don't think I've ever talked about this on the podcast. We bought a deal for 12 and a half million 500,000 square foot old Wheeler production plant in Garland, Texas. 
We sold it two years later for $26 million and thought we knocked the cover off the ball. That same buyer held it for one year and just collected rent and sold it for $52 million to Link, which is Blackstone's industrial. A year later, that did nothing but collect rent. And so that game is over now. Like that's actually what's exciting about the next few years. Like this whole like hot potato game is done. The right borrowers are going to get to borrow. They're going to get to raise equity. Operators are going to matter. Cash flow is going to matter. Like there's just no way it couldn't. And so I think the answer to your question is I think operating, there's nothing but great things that'll come for operators over the next few years. And the 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 sad part is there's a lot of people that were punting the f- the football up and down the field that thought they were operating, and that is about to you're you're about to have a field day on a bunch of ex punters that are retiring <laughs> from the, the game of punting. <laughs> no, no, I love that. That's that's I no, I, and I, and I think you're right. It's just I it's it's funny because I have been in that position where I'm like. I'm 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 on the loan with a lender, right? And I'm like, you know what? This is really the collateral's worth nothing. And then I'm over here looking at it. I'm like, you know what? It's worth something to me, though. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I have to. <laughs> I guess I have to do better on price. Uh, so your website said eight to twelve percent high yield loans. Is that going to be eight to twelve percent in 2023, or are we now move into like twelve to sixteen percent? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, I actually think they're going to come in a little bit because not on the low end, but on the high end, and that's simply because. I think this rates volatility, and obviously I don't know anything. And you should never trust someone. <laughs> here we go. You should never trust someone's macro view if they can't trade the product that they're that they're speculating about. So don't don't, don't believe anything I have to say about this. But I'm of the opinion that that rates volatility just can't keep being this fucking crazy, and that spreads at least have to come in. Even if even if nominal doesn't rally, I think that spread nominal has rallied decently hard here, but I, I do think that spreads have to come in now. You know, the question is going to be whether or not people are going to be okay putting the money out. And I think other terms are going to move. I think, I mean, we've already seen this leverage is coming a lot, right? On on construction loans, loan to ARV is coming a lot because lenders are sort of implicitly betting that the, the collateral is going to come off. So, you know, we'll probably see more of that. I think in terms of rates, I I, I do kind of expect them to come in a little bit. I do kind of what do you think needs to happen for money to start flowing again that the fed like we just need to have clear direction from the fed that they're done raising rates like because everybody kind of thought all right q4 you'll start seeing money start moving again that hasn't really happened what is it that's the trigger in your opinion that gets capital flows happening again it's interesting right because i feel like i mean this has been a wild year because no i mean if you've got a 60 40 you've got fucking destroyed i mean on both legs of that like the fixed income leg depending on what du- you know what kind of duration you you had on like you've gotten hit harder than equity right it's wild so i think the question becomes uh, obviously like rates being higher in nominal terms is kind of less good but we've had periods in history where they've been quite a bit higher than where they are now and there was liquidity so i think it's more so about it's more so about giving people certainty than needing rates to sort of rally in absolute terms. And, you know, capital markets have sort of gone ahead. I mean, the Fed has prodded them, but capital markets have gone ahead and priced some pretty bad shit happening at a point. And I think that hasn't really materialized. And so, you know, as sort of the macro data comes out, 
in Q1, Q2, I think that people will look at, you know, what they wanted to put out in terms of money and say, we're not at a place where we're going to hit that and we got to start doing it. And the, and the, and everybody can feel as bad as they want about this thing, but it's not really in the data yet. And I think that's probably, I think just seeing more prints and seeing them not suck is probably, you know, what, what people would like to, because people don't want it. Nobody, nobody wants to be that dumbass by themselves, right? If you're that dumbass with a bunch of other people, eh, whatever, everybody got it wrong. But I think, you know, to stick your neck out and start swinging, this is one of the things that I'm having some trouble with right now. And I'd be curious to know what you're, what you guys are doing on the acquisition side, right? I'm, I'm like, okay, well, this seems cheap, but maybe it'll be cheaper next month, right? It's tough. What do you think? And that's okay. That's a great. So we bought a deal in San Antonio like two weeks ago. Yeah, the 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 can we have buy it cheaper one day? Yes, but again, I think that's a little more of like punting. Like if you're operating one, we've got six and a half million square feet, so we see the data that's happening like by the day of what's going on. And what I would tell you in our asset class, I can't speak to like. I know what's going on in class shit office in New York City or suburban. It's bad. What I would say is like we're still signing record lease after record lease in small bay industrial in the Sun Belt. Like it's two different worlds. It's it's like the capital markets are dead, the ground game is great. And so we're just having to make a decision of like, are we not going to trust the fundamentals and just like, it's almost like we're going to hope that everything gets so much worse next year so that maybe there's a better entry point. Or are we going to follow the data today and, and definitely make a price adjustment that reflects today's kind of risk, but also we're pricing, we're buying, we bought that deal even at five and a half fix, we underwrote it that it would have worked with a seven and a half percent loan for five years which is not going to happen. But if in five years rates are up higher and we have to re- recap there again, it goes back to like, will we have the cash flow? And I guess the thing that nobody ever truly underwrites, it's like hard to do that is like, what if we go through the Great Depression and like everybody goes out of business? And I don't know, we just, we we don't play that game. And now it just seems like we're in this world, like we're, we're about to print 1.8 trillion. I mean, like out of nowhere, we're going to read it in like 48 hours. Like that has to be good for asset owners. I would have to imagine that it doesn't suck if you own buildings for 1.8 trillion. You have that, uh, you have that incredible, uh, you have that quote about how the uh, All, some sort of residual, uh, yes, here we go. All the, I'm, I'm botching my own quote, basically the residual value of all innovation makes its way down to land. It accrues to real estate. It does because, so you think about like Amazon, like every efficiency they get in the warehouse, eventually they have to renew their lease and the landlord's not an idiot and they're going to figure it out and they're going to raise their rent. I mean, it's basically, it's just everything. I mean, if it's cheaper you know, you can build these places that don't have parking garages because nobody's driving cars anymore. Why aren't they driving cars? Because Uber was invented. Well, guess what? You can pay more per unit or rent it more per unit because you're not paying for a parking garage and parking service and all this other. So no matter which way you dice it, as we get more efficient as a society, there's like one place that always ends up at the end of the day, and that's a building owner. Other than, you know, depression, right? Some big macro collapse. What do you think about when you think about like big existential risks to your business? 
big so like that the sunbell or like our population flows i guess slow down okay that would be a big one you know we're in an asset class where i'm not worried about new supply nobody's rebuilding 1980s warehouses in the center of cities in fact they're just knocking them down to build other better stuff really i mean it's it's a macro like it's got to be a huge depression that kills business because we have a lot of we have like a lot of blue blood business a lot of services a lot of contractors i call it kind of the backbone of america that keeps our cities running and like our our country flowing we don't have i'm not worried if you know some tech you know super tech company goes out of business they're not operating our stuff right now if if the slowdown right now it seems like there's a big push in society or just the world is like how do we get products to people quicker and cheaper and that's not just amazon anymore that's like your local roofer that's just trying to like do a better route to like not to save a little gas and everybody's just trying to stay close to the customer get to them quicker service them quicker that ultimately is really good for what we have to offer. And so if people stopped caring about that, that would suck. Dude, because our CapEx is <laughs> our like cap- great thing. Things seems like a great thing to be on the other side of, right? Someone's going to say, oh, no, I don't need it now. I can, I can have it later. <laughs> but like if you're looking at retail or office, even if you were to say like, okay, demand's there, the, pre- the, the preferences by tenants is changing dramatically. I mean, a, a restaurant build out now is like multi-million, an office build out. I mean, these are like museum quality build outs for nice office space. So one thing that would that would keep me up at night is if like what people required by way of CapEx or TI in these buildings, like somehow drastically preferences change because I'm dealing with sheetrock carpet, lights, a tiny office and a warehouse. Something that would throw us off considerably if people were starting to be like, no, you know, we want like marble floors in our 10%. Like that would be crazy. And then I'll tell you what's what's hurt what's hurting right now is insurance. Now I think that's hurting everybody, but like we own some stuff in Florida, we own some stuff in Houston. Just the way that insurers are starting to underwrite a lot of this stuff is now I don't know if that's hitting everybody, but like insurance sucks this year. Yeah, no, that that is. I mean, yeah, it's wild. I mean, I've 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 tried to fight it by doubling our deductibles on some stuff, and you barely get anything back in premium. I mean, it is it is wild. Do you think? And and I don't think either of us know that much about how <laughs> how this works. But do you? I mean, do you think there's an opportunity for like I don't know shitheads like us to band together? Because I don't make insurance claims. It's ridiculous. It's a crazy like that's the only thing worse than paying premiums is making claims. Like it's it's a fiasco. So. I don't know. Do you think that there's a, a, the potential for guys to come together and do something captive that could undercut all these guys? Or do you think that they're, do you think they're jacking premiums for a good fundamental reason? I think it's the, one of the biggest opportunities in the world. I don't really understand insurance. It's hard even to get the insurers to tell you how it all truly works. You know, the sound bites, which are like, oh, there was a f- hurricane in Florida that wiped out 50 billion. Therefore, like the whole country is going to pay for it in premiums, basically. Like, I get that. I mean, the, the shitty thing is everything's so expensive to build now and it keeps getting more expensive. And so one disaster. And then these lawyers just have a field day. I mean, everybody's suing everybody. And so just the the magnitude of disasters has been amplified. The, the answer is like, there has to be a solution. I talked to a lot of my buddies that just own real estate by themselves and they insure their stuff for so much less. It's because we have investors and, are, and have other people's money that we have to max insure what we have. 
most lenders require you to have like more insurance than you really need. Like a lot of it's lender driven. If it was just up to us, what we felt comfortable with, I mean, we would just insure for so much less. They make you insure for like the cost, the new cost to build. Yeah. Right. And we're like, well, we don't need that. The, the land's more expensive, like anything. And they're like, nope, sorry, you you have to have this. So I'm kind of speaking like in a circle, but the answer is yes, there has to be because it's unsustainable. And like there has to maybe be more incentives that lawyers can't just go sue the hell out of everybody and go after these hundred million dollar, you know, you used to get in a car accident. It was like, hey, you know, we're going to fix you up, blah, blah, blah. Now you drive down the street and there's billboards like I got so and so nine hundred million dollars for getting run over by an 18 wheeler. It's like I get that that's a good thing. But it's not great for society when there's like a everybody's flexing like how much you can sue somebody for, and that shows up in insurance. I know I I, I moved it from property to auto, but the same thing's happening in property when stuff goes wrong in a building. How many times? I don't know if you've had this. We get it all the time. People will sue will show up and trip on your site, like just show up trip and then file like a little lawsuit against the landlord for, and the the lawyer will not, you know, find some sign that's missing that should have been placed here. And it's a whole game now. And so I think one of the biggest ways to change the trajectory is the gamification with lawyers of like, there has to be penalties for these lawsuits that are kind of frivolous. And right now there are none. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Because one of the things, and obviously I'm, I'm an idiot who learns everything the hard way, but I was I was always under the impression, right, that um, legal fee, like the, the sort of the prevailing party's legal fees, would get paid, and that almost <laughs> never happened. Never happens. I've got it in every every agreement ever, right, and it, it's I've never had it happen. And it's it's just such a there's there's actually just no deterrent to being like a dickhead in the judicial system at all. Not I remember I I, I counted once. I've been through like sixteen attorneys in the time I've done this, and it's great because now I have like one for each of like three main things and and they're they're good at it but it took some time to find them right one of the guys was so fucking bad that i considered filing a grievance which <laughs> crazy right i mean why what i looked dude chris i looked at the process and i was like oh my god i would have to hire someone to do this like this is crazy right there's just nothing there's nothing in there for bad actors on the, i can't speak to criminal or family or any of the other shit but on the civil side if you're a fuckface like you're going to get, you're going to get work. Like that's, that's the way it goes. It's fucking crazy. And obviously, you know, whatever, I'm a bit of a fuck face on the foreclosure front, but Hey, um, yeah. I'm your there's fuck room face. for fuck faces in the market. <laughs> that that might yes. be the title of this episode. Yes. yes. But that doesn't impact people's cost of casualty insurance. So I, I, I don't feel badly. <laughs> the answer to your question is like, there is a, an answer. I don't know how we're going to get there. Like, it seems obvious, but I don't know. Um, the market, one of the things that I think is is wild about it is how opaque the market is. Like it's it's one of the, for, for something that is a multi-trillion dollar market, for the visibility to be this fucking, this terrible, right? You're like, you're calling up a, a broker. You don't know who he's calling. You don't know, you know, the prices he's, I mean, it's, it's, it's wild to me that such a massive market is so opaque. I mean, even homeowners is obviously better, but like, even that one is strange. Like, I go back to, I tell people this all the time. Everybody's like, is insurance a good business? And I'm like, I don't know. But the the best, greatest investor of all time, 
loves insurance and owns a bunch of insurance. And so my guess on that alone is that it's not too bad to be in. Um, but this Florida disaster, like we're paying for it in our Houston, like there's the, some of the discussion the is what happened. How much is the Florida shit up here? Because I've seen some real ridiculous oh, shit on Twitter. I don't, we, we're, we're, we're going back and forth right now on a quote, but it's going to be 50 to a hundred percent higher for some people. I mean, you know, it, it's a lot. And look, the incentive again, just, I mean, you hear from people all the time, like you think like, okay, that disaster probably cost a hundred billion, probably 10 billion of that's fraud. Like just people that are going to get, you know, scrape a little, a lot of it, like everybody's like, how can I get the most for the least? Basically, that's like the whole game with insurance. And so, and then you enter the attorneys. I don't know. It's just really incentivized to make prices go nowhere but up. So you think you think there's a claims issue as well as just the oh for sure I mean everybody's house had ten times as much furniture in it and and diamond rings and stuff and I'm not saying everybody but I guarantee you that what's claimed in a disaster like that and don't get me wrong these people's lives have been just destroyed and it's sad as shit to see but on the flip side if you're just looking at it from a business perspective like i can't imagine how much fraud happens i just can't imagine how much fraud happens i'll tell you one thing i did as a dumbass young kid i owned a bunch of rental properties at tcu there was a huge hailstorm and i just made a claim on like every roof and just thinking this is my time i'm getting all new roofs thank god for hail and sure enough, like it came back and they were like, no, like you have like one roof that kind of qualifies, but it put a permanent stain on me. You have an insurance credit score. I don't think most people understand that. When you make claims, you have a credit score of like how many times this person makes claims against their insurance. So for like five years, I couldn't get insurance at a good price because everybody's like, you're the guy that goes and claims on every house when a hailstorm comes mm -hmm. in. And I was like, yeah, I was that guy. Now, like you said, I do everything we can to not have to make a claim. Because um, not only is it getting more expensive, it gets even more expensive when they think you're a guy that makes a lot of claims. It's it's a double whammy. Well, and you got to hire a public adjuster. We had to make a claim. Oh God, this is a couple of years ago now. But it was, uh, hilariously enough, it was, the, it was actually the first non-performing loan I, I ever bought. I, I really learned my lesson on this one. It was owner-occupied, right? Nice property. I think it was on five acres. Had like a riding rink in the back. 5,000 square foot house. Good shit. And the occupants who were just saying they liked the, they liked the rock, they lit the fucking thing. The thing started on fire, right? The thing started on fire. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never had this happen before. And, you know, the, the insurance company sends their adjuster. The guy is telling us, you know, no big deal. He's like, yeah, this, is, this is not a big, this is not structural. You could just paint this. <laughs> I say, I'm, I'm over there. I'm like, you cannot fucking paint any fucking fire damage, man. And so, you know, they come back. And so this is my first lesson where, okay, get, get a public adjuster and fight. And the guy fought and it was, it was good shit. But I mean, it was a, it was a shit show. I mean, this is a single family house. It takes nine fucking months. It's, a, it's, and the, you know, the guy lowballed the shit out of the side of the gate. He's like, yeah, this is probably like 20 grand. I'm like, 20, 20 grand to rebuild a house? You fucking crazy! I looked at his pricing. We actually, we actually own some dumpsters in a roll-off truck, and I was like, I looked at his dumpster pricing. I'm like, I don't, I own the dumpsters, and I can't dump for this. Like, this is fucked up. So yeah, no, it's a, it's a hell of a racket. And you're right. There's a reason Buffett's in it. You're getting hit from every which way. Like when, when true hailstorms come out. 
you know, you, there's roofers out there that are like, I know how to get the full client. I mean, it's just like everybody's got a game in insurance. It just very much seems like, and 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 a lot of times it's like, how hard are you willing to fight the adjuster? Some people just like hear it and they're like, all right, I guess that's what we get. Come to find out, like if you just fight a little harder, there's there's a lot more, but their game is like, how can we give you the least? And your game is like, well, we just paid you a bunch of premiums. I want the most. And that's not the the true game. They're, they have built a whole system around how do we pay you the least, but make sure your premiums are the most. I asked our our public adjuster, you know, they they did come, they came back with a more reasonable number. And I said, all right, what if I don't take this? And I mean, it was, they were, I'm going to hire an attorney and they get to hire an attorney. And then there's a third attorney. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, this, like all these third parties are going to get more money than I would on the claim, right? And this is wild. It's just, uh, no, they've, they've got the thing set up. They got the thing set up well. They really do. We covered a lot. We covered loans, crack houses. We covered office a little bit. A little macro. With a little macro, a little hedge fund, a little corn trading. This was awesome. <laughs> yeah, man. Listen, I, I appreciate you having me on. I love your love your shit. You're one of my favorite fucking followers. You're, you you're, too. You're, you're, you're a great I actually OG. love you. I, lo- I loved you a lot. I love you a lot more after this last hour and a half. I, I didn't think there was much more to give, but I think, I think we're <laughs> lifelong buddies now. <laughs> well, if you're ever in West Hartford again, or if I'm in Texas, I'll, I'll definitely let you know. You have a you have a place anytime you're in DFW and uh I'll holler at you. Have a have a great holiday season and, and Christmas. Yeah, man. Merry Christmas and uh looking forward to uh to hearing how bad I sound on this thing on my, on my commute. <laughs> Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.